Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Well, let's just have a quick word of prayer, then we'll start with our sermon this morning. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to worship you this morning. Um, Father, we're thankful for the rain as well. What a wonderful thing it is for you to shower the earth with, with um, the blessings that you have, Father, and to shower us with your spiritual blessings as well. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word this morning, Father, that you may speak um, and that you may use me um, and that the scriptures, Father, may be open to us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, today's message is part two of, obviously, part one. Um, part one we had three or so weeks ago, or four weeks ago. So there's been a bit of time that's elapsed between presentations. So what I thought that we'd do before we start is I would test you all. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to do a bit of revision just to recap you know, what we covered a month or so ago. Um, today's message is an angel's message, part two. So we looked at part one a month ago. And we looked at the the first angel's message in Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to be spending today's study um, looking through Revelation 14 and finishing the last two angel's messages. There's three angel's messages. We looked at the first one. Today we're going to have a look at the last two. And what we found as we looked at the first angel's message is we found that there's a distinctive call that God has given to humanity before he comes. Um, the, the scriptures basically say this. John is in vision and he says, And I saw an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Verse 7 says, Saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. So there's a distinctive call that is going to humanity at this final phase of earth's history. And it's a call that goes out and it is embodied, it's encapsulated with the everlasting gospel. That's what goes first. The everlasting gospel goes out and it's a universal message. We saw this. And it's a distinctive call from God to do four things. The first one is to fear him. Okay, To fear him is to reverence him, to understand that he is a holy God. And in a society today where God isn't reverenced as much as he should be, that's a very pertinent call, isn't it? To fear God, to give glory to him. You know, God's character is manifested, and when God's character is manifested, it is glorious. God's glory is the same thing as God's character. So God is calling his people to manifest or reflect or display his character to the world around. Third one is the hour of judgment will be coming. The hour of judgment is coming or the hour of judgment has come. The hour of judgment has come. It's a present tense word. The hour of judgment has come. And we understand that as the investigative judgment happening right now at this time in earth's history. And then the last call is to worship him. Worship is a very, very important thing in Revelation chapter 13 and 14. The final call, the final conflict that humanity will experience is a conflict over worship. And God says, worship me who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. 
God is labeled or God is communicating, basically saying that he is the creator God. I mean, worship him who made, the creator. And the question I want to throw out to you this morning to see how good you were last month when I preached part one, how do we worship the creator? How do we worship the creator? You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to understand how you worship the creator. The first day God creates, the second day God creates, the third day all the way through to the sixth day, God creates in six literal days, and what does he do at the end of the creation week? He rests. When does he rest? He rests on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a memorial in time where God's people would recognize that he is the creator. Why? Because God rested at the end of the creative week, and he spent time with humanity. Isn't that a beautiful understanding to have? That God set a whole period of time, 24 hours, where his people would commune with him. And is it any different today? So that's the first angel's message. Now, I guess the question that I was thinking as I was preparing this yesterday is why would God ask you to do something that you're already doing? I mean, why would God give this final call to reverence him, to reflect his character, to understand that the hour of judgment has come and that we are to return to worshiping him on the day that he is created if it wasn't already being done? I'll give you an illustration. At home, there's some chores that Rosie and myself do. Usually, or actually most of the time, she prepares the meal and I wash up or I clean up afterwards. Sometimes I forget, not the dinner, I always seem to turn up for dinner, I forget the thing that comes after the dinner, the cleaning up afterwards. I don't know if that's, I don't think that's just an Ashley problem, I think that's a universal male problem. Um, I get preoccupied with something else. And so we've had our meal, dinner is finished, it's now come time for me to clean up. So I clean up the plates before we had a dishwasher, actually I think I've got the better deal now because we've got a dishwasher. I put the plates in the dishwasher and I started, oh, such a difficult job. Wipe down the benches. Everything's clean. What sense would it make for Rosie to come out after I had cleaned down the kitchen and look at the bench and look at the plates all stacked in the dishwasher confined in this dirty little box? What sense would it then make for her to say, Ashley, I'm asking you to clean the kitchen? I would respond and say the kitchen is already clean. I mean, she wouldn't ask that question because it's already done. I mean, why would God be calling the world to worship him on the day that he had sanctified and set apart in the book of Genesis if we weren't already doing it? Does that make sense? God is calling people back to a biblical understanding of worship because it had been forgotten. Let's introduce the second angel's message. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to see the second angel's message, which flows on from the first. And it says this, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You notice the words that are used there, Babylon is fallen. It's a past tense thing. It has happened. Babylon has fallen some time ago with decisions that Babylon has made compromises that Babylon has made. She is not what she once used to be. And the fact that she has fallen is the fact that she will not rise again. She will not correct herself. 
She will not reform herself. She has fallen and she will stay fallen till the end. That's the biblical understanding that you get from the book of Revelation. Babylon does not change its ways. Babylon stays Babylon until the very end. So Babylon has fallen. When you, when you look at the ancient, um, the ancient you know, understanding of Israel and what happened to the Jewish people in the, the promised land in Jerusalem and, and roundabout, you actually find that one of their ancient enemies, one of their fiercest enemies was Babylon. Babylon came and oppressed the city of Jerusalem three times. And on the third time, it broke through the city, it broke down the walls, it destroyed the palace, it destroyed the temple, it laid it waste. And it wasn't just the destruction of the temple, but it was also taking captives away from Jerusalem over to Babylon, training them in the religious thought and culture of Babylon. A removal and an indoctrination in a new society. That's what Babylon did to Jerusalem. And you read through the ancient prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, Initially, Babylon was used by God to defeat a rebellious nation, Israel. But then Babylon was judged and was to be judged. Babylon was not just a secular power church. Babylon was also religious as well. Babylon had a whole pantheon of gods that they worshipped. You would go to Babylon and you'd be confronted with temple after temple after temple. And you'd be confronted with tons and tons of gold used in the worship service in Babylon. Gold's all over the place. In fact, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the the gold artifacts that were used in worship were taken from the temple in Jerusalem and they're actually taken and put into the temples of Babylon. So Babylon was not just a political power, it was also a religious power as well. And I want to share something interesting with you. The early Jews, I mean the later Jews, and the early Christians identified Rome as Babylon. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 13 on the screen, it says, he's talking about someone who is in Babylon, and he says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Now, I want to tell you why they used code name for Rome. And they used Babylon as that code name. I want to tell you why that was the case. Rome was the power of the day, the superpower of the day. Christians were being persecuted enough. So what was done is they came up with a code name for Rome, Babylon, so they could disguise their intentions and their understandings. They knew the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. The head of gold being Babylon. The chest and arm of silver being Medes and the Persians. The belly and thighs being that of bronze, the legs of iron being Rome, and the feet of iron and clay. And from that prophecy, you can read the literature, they knew that Rome was to fall. It's actually really remarkable. And they would point to those prophecies and they say, Rome is about to fall. But they didn't say Rome. Guess what they said? They said, Babylon is about to fall. Because imagine if they were coming out against the empire of the day and saying, Babylon, you're going to fall. I mean, Rome, you're going to fall, you're going to fall they would awaken unnecessary persecution. So they use code names. It's really cool. And this shouldn't be anything new to us because when we jump to Revelation chapter 13, um, you see that there's this final issue of worship. And you jump a few chapters forward and you see in Revelation chapter 17, look at this, turn with me here to Revelation 17. You see another description of Babylon. Babylon which is fallen. Fallen. 
In chapter 17 and verse 1, this is what the scriptures say. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, in Bible prophecy, a woman is a symbol of what? A church. A pure woman is a symbol of what kind of church? A pure church, pure in doctrine, pure in purity, and pure in truth. A harlot woman is what kind of church? An impure church, one which has compromised itself. Look at what it says. In verse 2 it says, Who sits on many waters. Okay, now you jump down to verse, I think it's 15 or so, it says that those waters, that symbol is many, many people. Nations, kindreds and tongues. So this woman is a universal church. In verse 2 it says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. A harlot commits adultery. This woman is a church that commits adultery with who? The kings of the earth, combining church and state to achieve its aims. Verse 3 says this, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, scarlet is red, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. You jump down to the end of the chapter, verse 18, look what it says. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let me rewind a little bit to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city. The condemnation against Babylon in the second angel's message is the same Babylon that's represented here in Revelation 17. Does that make sense? You can see the parallels there. There's a few things that I want to highlight in this text. There's so many, so many proofs. There's so many things that we could identify as representing the Antichrist of Scripture. But one of them is the colors that are used and the absence of one of those colors. Red, purple, and gold with precious stones. Now, in the ancient Jewish tabernacle, the high priest was adorned in a number of colors. He was adorned in red or scarlet. He was covered in purple on the ephod. Precious stones, that was the breastplate. And Precious stones, gold, purple, red. Those were the colors that the high priest had, but there was one other color that, is, that was on the, the, the high priest's clothing that wasn't actually on the clothing here of the harlot. Does anyone know what color that was? It's blue. What did blue symbolize for the Jew? Look at this. You shall have the tassel. You know, has anyone ever seen a Jewish person with blue tassels on their clothing? Yep. Yeah. They have blue tassels that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the 
harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes were inclined. Isn't it interesting? The mother of harlots. Here's this harlot woman, and she's dressed in every color except the color that symbolizes God's law. Interesting. And it's interesting when we take this and we apply this, there's no other power that this could relate to, no other religio-political power that this could relate to, and we've already done a, a sermon on this. The Roman Catholic Church state, look at the colors. You've got red, you've got white, and you've got gold. And you've also got purple, but you'll never see blue. You'll never see blue. There's some more things that I want to share with you. It says that it's a beast. She's riding a beast. So here's this church, this corrupt church, riding a beast. Now, if a woman represents a church, and a harlot woman represents a false church, an apostate church, what does a beast represent? Jump to, rep- to, to Daniel chapter 7. What does the lion with eagle's wings represent? It represents a nation. So here's this woman not being ridden by a beast, but rather it's a woman riding a beast. She has control over a political power to do her own sway. Okay, can you see that? Here's a woman riding a beast. You know, and she's committing fornication, and she's called that great city. This um, is a medallion that was commissioned in, nine, in 1825 by Pope Leo XII. And I'm not going to pronounce that Latin just there. But this picture that you see, you can kind of see it. It's probably, this project is actually a little bit better. Here's a woman and she's sitting on the earth. So she's sitting on many waters. Interesting. And guess what's in her hand? A golden cup. Okay? So even in these medallions, even in the symbology that's used by the church, you see evidences here of scripture actually... Um, during the Protestant Reformation, which Hilton was referencing in the, in the welcome, you know, um, the Protestant reformers actually pointed to this chapter and said, this is, this is the apostate church in Rome. They identified her because on the Pope's, on the Pope's um, tiara or whatever he wore on his head, he had the word mysterium, which is mystery. And then you look at verse 5, it says mystery, Babylon the Great. So they changed the name to Vicarious Filii Dei which takes us right into Revelation chapter 13, which equals 666. Um, So it's interesting, isn't it? So not only do the colors reveal who this is, not only does the fact that it's a church and a state combined reveal this, but it's also the fact that she is a mother, and a mother has daughters. Daughters spread across the globe. Those who say they have distanced themselves, who have left mum's home, but still hold to something which mum gave them at the very beginning not willing to distance themselves completely from the truths that they have inherited from mum. And we see that as fallen Protestantism. And we looked at that in Revelation chapter 13. Um, Another interesting thing is, when I was in Rome, we went to this church. It's called St. John's Lateran. Has anyone been there before? It's actually, it's a really, Rosie's been there before. When did you go, Rosie? We went to this church, and this was actually the church, um, basically it's the equivalent of St. Peter's in Vatican City, um, when Martin Luther was alive. St. Peter's was built after Martin Luther went to Rome. So Martin Luther went here, he would have went into this church, he would have seen the, the glory of this church. It's beautiful, it's so spectacular. And on the front of this church, on the facade, written in Latin is this, for everyone to see 
It says, head and mother of all churches of the city and the earth. Let me just read you something. Revelation 17, verse 5, mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Clear as day. It's there. And not just that, when you come down to verse 9, it says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Rome is called the city of what? Seven hills. I mean, there's no denying it. There's no escaping it. We know who the, this woman is. We know the Babylon who has fallen, who has fallen, is none other than the Church of Rome. I guess the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is this. If Babylon has fallen, and if God's gospel message is everlasting, in other words, it does not fade, it does not wane, it stands forever, it's not a shifty, f- fake Um, foundation, but rather it's a foundation which is eternal as God is eternal. Which foundation are we building on? Are we building on something that is loose or something that is steadfast? Are we building upon God's word and the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Or are we trusting to our own means, our own methods and our own righteousness? Because when I read the Bible, there's only one foundation that will endure till the end. And that's the foundation of God's word. I mean, this is the amazing thing when we have a look at the scriptures. It may appear as if God's people are going to be destroyed. It may appear as if truth is going to be wiped out. It may appear as if the enemy has won. But the end of the story reads this. God is victor and truth will march on. What would we rather choose? Peace and safety in the here and now, or eternity with God in the hereafter? There's really only two choices. I would rather, I would rather go through suffering and trial now and trusting God now and live with God for eternity than to compromise for peace and safety that's temporary. Would you trade eternity for something that is temporary? That's really the reality here, because Babylon has fallen, but the gospel is everlasting. And if you have received the gospel into your life, you have received something that is everlasting, something that will never fade. Actually, it shines brighter and brighter as the coming day. And then when that day does come, church, you will walk on the streets of glass in the kingdom made new. You will see Jesus face to face. And I tell you what, when you're walking on those streets of gold and you're seeing Jesus face to face, you won't be thinking, oh man, I wish I invested there back on earth. I wish I got that car. I wish I went and, 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 and took that promotion and compromised my faith so I could get that. No, you're not going to be thinking that. You'll be thinking, man, heaven is cheap enough. Any decision, any choice of consecration that I made in this life was well worth it. You're either on shaky ground or you're on a firm foundation and there is no other firm foundation that can be laid other than that which has been laid and that's Jesus Christ the righteous. What foundation are you laying your life upon? Turn with me to Revelation 14 and verse 9. The third angel's message. Now, 
The third angel's message is quite an intense message. Um, God uses intense language because that's just the reality of the matter. God doesn't say things for the sake of saying things. He says things that are real. He says things that are legitimate. He says things that are pressing. The reason that God's language is so strong here is because it needs to be so strong, because the alternative is terrible. In verse 9 it says this, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12 is key. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This final message of warning has to do with what? What does it have to do with, church? What's that one thing it has to do with? Worship. I want you to take that word and I want you to store it in the back of your minds. We're going to come to that very, very shortly. But in Revelation chapter 14, you find two different marks or two different seals. The first one is God's. The second one is the beast's or Satan's because Satan gives power to the beast. In Revelation 14 and verse 1, those who get the victory over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name have something in their foreheads. It's the seal of God. It's the Father's name written on their foreheads. It's interesting when you put into Google the mark of the beast, the answers that you get. You know, who here has heard of Gorbachev? I think that was his name. He had a big birthmark on his forehead and people thought it was the mark of the beast. I don't know how you can transmit a birthmark to everyone else's foreheads, but anyways. You get very, very interesting interpretations on the mark of the beast through Google, through the news. And there's always a problem when you go to the news or you go to Facebook or go to YouTube to try and find the answers for that which is in the Bible. If you want to find out what the mark of the beast is, go to the Bible. Yeah, And if you want to find out what the mark of the beast is, you have to understand what God's seal is to start with. Because what Satan does is he always counterfeits what God has done. And the Antichrist is the master of counterfeits. And the counterfeit is similar to the original but different. Would it make any sense, church, to try and counterfeit a 25-cent piece? Would it make any sense? I mean, people could call it out as a, as a counterfeit straight up. You would try and counterfeit, I don't know why you would try and counterfeit a 20 cent piece, but you'd probably go to the original. You counterfeit the original. That's what Satan does. The mark of the beast has to do with worship. Look at this in Revelation 14 and verse 9. It says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, the mark of the beast has to do with worship. Does that make sense? You see that? It's very clear in the text just there. I want you to remember that. When you look at the scriptures, when you look anciently at the Jewish people and at the Jewish writings, God's seal was always his law. Always. 
I mean, the children of Israel, they were saved from Egypt. God had rescued them from slavery. They crossed through the Red Sea. They come to the base of Mount Sinai, and God enters into a covenant with them. The covenant was based upon God's law or God's Torah. And the children of Israel say, everything that you have promised God, we will do. Children of Israel actually took it quite literally when they got the phylacteries in Jesus' time. The Pharisees got these big phylacteries on their foreheads when God said that he wants them to bind his words on their foreheads. The law is God's seal. Let me jump back a little bit. The Father's name is written on their foreheads. God's law and the Father's name are synonymous It's like when a little child is playing with two different colours of Play-Doh and they mix together. You can't separate them ever again. God's name and God's law are interconnected. And what I mean by that is this. God is the revelation of his law. Remember when the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. You know, he's actually quoting the book of Deuteronomy, word for word, verbatim. It wasn't something that Jesus came up with. He was quoting the Old Testament. And he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the book of Leviticus. He wasn't making anything up. He was quoting the Old Testament. The very definition of God's law is a law of love, always. It's others-centered. Our relationship with God and our relationship with humanity, it's all love. The Bible says that God is love. So when the Father's name is written on their forehead, the Father's name is a name of love, and God's law is a law of love. It's very, very clear in the Scripture. God's law has not been done away with, church. Otherwise, God's throne has been done away with. That is an absolute heresy. God's disciples have the sealing of God's law. Okay, this is the next point. The final issue is over worship. Which of the commandments have to do with worship? Sabbath, and there's one more as well. You shall not bow down and worship any graven image. Isn't it interesting that in the Roman church there's a whole lot of statues which you can bow down and worship? And in the catechism, they've actually taken the second commandment and got the white out and put the white out through it. Because there's idols and saints that you can pray to. And then the Ten Commandments now becomes the Nine Commandments, and the Nine Commandments don't really sound as good as the Ten Commandments, so they split the last one into two. And you come to the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment, they change to remember the Lord's day. So it goes from remember the Sabbath day, it goes from the longest commandment to the shortest commandment. Interesting. God's law was his seal, but in the Ten Commandment law, there was a special one that signified the difference between God's people and the rest of the world. Look what it says. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. God's Sabbath is a sign between God and his people. And you may be looking at that text and saying, well, that's Israel. But the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, it says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
when you look at Revelation, the 144,000 are characterized by the 12 tribes of Israel. But they're Gentiles. God's people are referenced to as Israel. There's not going to be two parts in heaven, those who are saved by the law and those who are saved by grace. How silly is that? Whoever has been saved has been saved by the blood of Jesus. Old Testament looking forward to the cross, New Testament looking back. You've all been saved by grace. God does not change. His laws do not change. The signs between him and his people have not changed either. And look at this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Remember, God says, worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. God's call is to worship him on the day that he has set aside the final call to humanity. The kitchen isn't clean, guys. You're not worshiping the way that you should be. Remember my Sabbath day. In fact, it's the only commandment that begins with the word remember. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath. Now, if God says this is mine, how important is that to him? If God goes to the effort of saying this is mine, if God says... I am yours and you are mine. That's special. That's intimacy. But when God here says, it is my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And this is a point that I really want to make. Sanctified is make holy. God makes his people holy. You don't make yourself holy. The Sabbath is all about rest. It's not about works. Works is doing something to try and earn favor by God, but the word sanctifies and the fact that God is the one who is sanctifying demonstrates to me that the Sabbath is redemptive when you rest in the blood of Jesus. So God's seal is his law and his Sabbath is a special part of that seal. It identifies who gave the law, the Lord, the creator who owns the heavens and the earth. Other than that, you wouldn't know who God's law was or who gave it the sabbath becomes a f- an ideal test of loyalty and i'll explain why out of all of the 10 commandments it's the only commandment that doesn't really make sense i just want you to think about it it makes sense not for us to go and make graven images and bow down and worship them because we made them That makes sense. I hope that makes sense to you. It makes sense not to go into my neighbor's house and steal his stuff. I hope that one makes sense to you. It makes even more sense not to murder your neighbor. Okay? They all make sense. You can reason from cause to effect, can't you? But you come to the Sabbath commandment, what difference does a day make? Like, really? Apart from the fact that God has said it. It's the ideal test of loyalty because God is basically saying, do you trust me enough? Do you trust what I've said? And for the Christian, for the Bible-believing Christian, really, that should be our watchword, shouldn't it? If the scriptures say it, we should do it. Sometimes we wait for a convenient time for us to make up our decision. But what if God was calling us to make the decision based upon the truth that he had revealed? God has revealed enough for us to make a decision according to that truth that he's revealed. And the ideal test of loyalty is when there is no self-interest involved. I'll give you an illustration. Let me say that I'm up the front here and I say, okay, church, we're having a working bee tomorrow. And if you come to the working bee, 
I will give you $1,000 each. I guarantee you we will have more people at the working bee than what we've ever had before. Why? Because there's something in it for you. I'm not going to do that, by the way. Don't turn up tomorrow. But if I said, okay, church, we're having a working bee tomorrow, it's all voluntary. You won't get as much. And this is why it's the ideal test of loyalty. Do we worship God from the things that we can get, or do we worship God because of who he is? That's why the Sabbath is there. God has said it once. He doesn't need to repeat himself. In fact, the beast is calling for worship. I think it's seven times in Revelation 13 to 14. God says it once because God already spoke it at Mount Zion. Jesus kept the Sabbath. The early church kept the Sabbath. And God is calling the world who has forgotten to clean the kitchen bench to keep the Sabbath too. So, let's go to the next one. The Mark of the Beast. What is the mark of the beast? Well, we know who the beast is. So it has to be something that's been promoted by the Roman church state. I'm going to relate a little bit of history to you because of what Martin Luther did almost 500 years ago. There was a council, and it was called the Council of Trent, and it went for 18 years. It's a very long board meeting, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you may feel as if the board meetings are going that long. But I, trust me, a board meeting... I've never heard of a board meeting that's gone for 18 years. And at the end of this board meeting, this was the decision that they made. This was a Roman Catholic board meeting or council, bishops, cardinals, you name it, theologians. This was the decision that was made. On the 18th of January, 1563, the Council of Trent ruled that tradition is greater than Scripture. After a powerful speech by Archbishop Reggio in which he said that the fact that the church had changed the fourth commandment clearly proved that tradition was greater than scripture. Do you have a problem, Protestants? Is tradition ever greater than scripture? Martin Luther pointed to sola scriptura. He said, prove me from the Bible. And they said, the traditions of the fathers say this. The tradition of the fathers say this. And this big, long council, it was an opportunity for the church to reform itself. But in saying this, it had given evidence of the fact that it had fallen. Tradition was greater than scripture. Actually, when Martin Luther was being debated with by Dr. Eck during the Diet at Worms, he was challenged on the Sabbath. Look what happened. Dr. Eck is challenging him. And look what he says to, to Martin Luther. If, however, the church has had power to change the Sabbath of the Bible into Sunday. Now, I don't read any verse anywhere in Scripture where that's actually the case. And to command Sunday keeping, why should it not have also this power concerning other days, many of which are based on the Scriptures? If you omit the latter and turn from the church to the Scriptures alone, then you must keep the Sabbath with the Jews which has been kept from the beginning of the world. So Martin Luther, you've got to understand what's happening here. Martin Luther was saying the Bible and the Bible alone, they said, well, if you're going to follow that through to the end, then what about the Sabbath? He had no answer to this. He was actually defeated in this debate because of this. Interesting. Let's come to today, church. Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power. Notice, is a mark 
of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. We have the authoritative voice of the church, the voice of Christ himself. Now, I don't read that anywhere in the Bible. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sunday observance from Saturday to Sunday is proof positive of that fact. Deny the authority of the church and you have no adequate or reasonable explanation or justification for the substitution of Sunday for Saturday. Is tradition greater than scripture? The final issue is basically this. Would you take a thus saith the Lord or would you take a thus saith man? Because really that's what it comes down to. What foundation are we building upon, church? If God had said it once, surely that should be enough for us. And in Revelation chapter 13, read these scriptures with me. It says, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. When we studied this, we found this to be fallen Protestantism in the United States of America. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. And let me just make a quick disclaimer here. It's not a physical mark like you're branding a cow. It's a spiritual mark. You make the decision here and the action is in your hand. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's what the Bible says. It's a decision made here and it's an action acted upon. Just as God's decision here, God's people are sealed in the truth of his word. They cannot be convinced either way. The mark of the beast is making a decision for that which is untrue. And in verse 17 it says, And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. This isn't happening yet, church. No one has the mark of the beast as we speak. If God's seal is his Sabbath, what's the counterfeit to God's Sabbath? It's Sunday. It's the mark of the Roman papal church. We see that very clearly. It has no foundation of scripture. It comes back to a period of time where the state identified and understood and thought, well, in order to reach the pagan world, let's compromise a few of our doctrines and beliefs, and it's stuck ever since. No one has it now, but there will come a time where religious liberties, which are very, very slowly, actually not slowly, rapidly being eroded away, where this will become an issue of conflict and it will be enforced. (sighs) Verse 12, as we close. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In the midst of this worldwide compromise, God's people choose to worship him on the day that he is set aside and they choose to keep his commandments. Isn't that amazing? They choose to love the Lord, their God, with all their hearts, with all their minds and with all their souls, fulfilling the first four commandments, which is to only have one God, not to bow down to graven images, not to use God's name in vain to remember his Sabbath. And they love their neighbours as themselves. They honour their parents. They don't kill their neighbours. They don't steal from them. They don't lie to them. 
They don't covet what their neighbours have. That's really the outflow of the Ten Commandments. They instruct us in the best possible way that we should live. We should have religious freedom. We should not be enforced by the state. But that is coming. And God's people who endure to the end are those who keep the commandments of God in their entirety. They don't choose what is convenient for them, but they choose what God has instructed. And they have the faith of Jesus. They're not riding into heaven based upon what they have done, but they're riding into heaven based upon what God has done. God's people will take his word as it reads. Is God's word enough to convince you? I mean, we can be convinced by so much these days, can't we? I think we can be, pre- we can be programmed to believe certain things based upon what the media reveals, what Hollywood shows and what Facebook chooses to post and chooses not to post. And we can be pre-programmed to think certain ways and we don't even realise it because that's the essence of deception. Deception is being deceived and you don't even know that you're deceived. What would it take to convince you of God's truth? You're waiting for him to split out in the sky. You're waiting for things to heat up and this conflict become more intense before you make your decision, before you go all the way with Jesus. You know, I talk to many people and they say, you know what, I'm waiting until the Sunday laws come past or whatever it is, and then, and then I'm going to choose to go all the way with Jesus. Well, when that happens, church, it will be too late. Today is a day of salvation. If it's in the Bible, why not choose now? There is no more convenient season than the present. If you're putting it off, then you're building on a shaky foundation which will not stand. Jesus says, he who hears my words and does them is like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Jesus says that he is that rock. Christ is that rock. And choosing to build on Christ is the smartest, most intelligent decision that you could ever make. And my encouragement for you today is to do that. To trust in Jesus and the Bible as it reads. Father in heaven, we just bow before you this afternoon saying we want to surrender our lives into your hands. And we want Jesus, his word, to be our foundation. Father, we ask and pray that you may do in us what we cannot do ourselves. And Father, that it may be said of us in that day, good and faithful servants enter into the joy of the Lord. Father, may we be those who enduringly endure to the end, Father, that we are patient to the end, that we keep your commandments and have the faith of Jesus, not because of anything that we have done or any merits that we have, but because you promised to never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for the assurance of your word. We thank you for the relevancy of your word, the eternal relevancy of your word. The fact that, Lord, in this time in earth's history, when everything is uncertain, you are certain. And what you have spoken surely will come to pass. We need not be taken unawares. But we need to lift our eyes to heaven because our redemption draws near. We thank you for the fact, Lord, that we are homeward bound. Let us say this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio 
within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
That beautiful piece of instrumental music was brought to us by Jared Rowden and Phil Murray. It's called It Is Well With My Soul. And to close out the hour, we have Call to Praise, the song The Hour. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Come out from the world and follow me. 
and praise His holy name. For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.